Hello and welcome to the Monocle Culture Show with me, Robert Bound. It was one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, but there was a bit of planning behind it. Apollo 11 was the mission that sent three men to the moon. Two, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, would walk on it, take home some rocks and plant the stars and stripes after the eagle had landed, while Mike Collins kept the motor running in Columbia, the command module. The gauntlet for the United States to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade had been thrown down by President Kennedy in 1960. And in July 69, the feat was realised, watched on by the world on live TV. That was 50 years ago to the month. The anniversary saw the release of a documentary simply called Apollo 11, made by Todd Douglas Miller, using the footage beamed from space over the nine days of the mission and previously unseen footage inside Mission Control in Houston and from Launch Control at Cape Canaveral in Florida, where hundreds of thousands camped and lined the beaches in paper hats and shades waiting for blast-off. And joining me on the programme today to talk about the men on the moon is Anna Smith, film critic and host of Podcast Girls on Film, and the writer and Monocle 24 presenter Andrew Miller. Welcome both to the programme. Hello. Um, Great to have you here. We're going to... We've kind of mentioned blast-off. People know, as Andrew was saying before we switched on the microphones, we know how this film ends, happily. Um, But just to get us and our listeners in the mood, let's have a little bit of a clip from Apollo 11. I'd like to know what you feel uh, as far as the responsibilities of representing mankind on this trip. That's uh, relatively difficult to, to answer. Uh, it's a job that we collectively said that was possible and we could do. And, and of course, that the nation itself is backing us. So we just sincerely hope that we measure up to that. program was designed to get two Americans to the lunar surface and back again to Earth safely. The enormity of this event is something that only history will be able to judge. Okay, history's judged it pretty kindly. Uh, and this is a this is a wonderful film. How does it, um, considering we all know how it ends, how does it keep its tension going? How do we tell a story that's been told so many times before, Anna? I think it was an interesting decision not to use any specific narration, not to use talking heads and very much rely on the footage. And then most of what you're hearing is them speaking to each other, which does give it an amazing sense of intimacy and urgency. You feel like you're kind of hearing historic words, which you are. Um, I felt that this um, really benefited from the reconstructed footage, the fact that it is looks so crisp and new and clear. It almost feels like time travel. Literally, when you're sat in a big screen watching this, and for me particularly watching people at Cape Canaveral um, sitting there and just seeing, I almost felt like I stepped into 1969 and just sitting in the crowd watching with them and feeling that sense of anticipation. So I think it maintained the tension by drawing between the the, you know, the station, between Houston, between Apollo, and then the people at home waiting and watching and putting you in there, all those people's positions, really. Uh, and there is there is kind of there is the, the, the narrative that the, the original CBS live TV broadcast uh, lends to the spectacle itself. Walter Cronkite, the sort of warm, dark voice of <laughs> sort of benign American authority um, uh, uh, is quite ever present uh, in this documentary as well, Andrew. Um, does it does it does it remind does it does it make you kind of think of the future in terms of space travel or does it does it very much seem like a 
a, a kind of happy relic of 50 years ago. Uh, both of those things, I mean, as, as Anna said, it's a, a beautiful uh, encapsulation of a particular period in America, not just in terms of uh, the space program, which I think represented a lot of the optimism of the 1960s, uh, but in terms of what it looks like. It is quite mesmerising, the detail of what people are wearing and what people are driving, of course, all yeah. these beautiful 1960s, I mean, beautiful but ludicrous 1960s American cars. <laughs> Only slightly the, the, less gas guzzling than the rocket well, itself. Well, exactly, almost <laughs> the size of Saturn, of Saturn V rocket, quite a lot of them. It, it looks absolutely phenomenal, but I, th- I think that, that, as Anna said, the fact that there's no talking heads reflecting back on it, that all the commentary is... Um, the verite commentary does bring back that air of tension because, of course, all these people talking, Walter Cronkite among them, don't know how this is going to end. Mm. They don't know whether they're about to watch and narrate and try to make sense of either one of humankind's greatest achievements or an absolute calamity. There's, I mean, obviously it's, it's a much told story, as you said, in a much documented event, but there's another fantastic documentary that was made a few years ago called In the Shadow of the Moon, which the most haunting moment of which is they have the footage of the speech that President Richard Nixon recorded to be broadcast in the event yeah. specifically of Eagle not being able to leave the moon, which was the main worry of the whole Apollo program. They were pretty confident they could get there and put two men on the moon. What was always a bit up in the air was whether they could get them back off. And Nixon had written and recorded a speech. And it's when you when you see that, and I'm sure it's on the internet, but yeah, yeah. still your blood absolutely freezes. What an extraordinary moment for humankind that would have been for all the, all the worst reasons. And just and seeing and, and that mission. I mean, we I don't know why I had a, an image in my head or an, a, a time frame in my head of of it taking sort of a couple of days. I don't know why I thought that would be the case because <laughs> they circled the sort of Earth for two days just to get the slingshot effect to get mm. there and all the rest of it. But um, you do have a you have a sense in the you know the fact that it took you know almost two weeks or whatever to do it of the kind of enormity of the distances involved, and then you look at the speedometer on the shot, on the on the rocket and you see how fast it's going as well. It's sort of it it does feel very foreign. Um, and one of the most touching bits was when I think Walter Cronkite talking about not since Adam has any man felt the supreme loneliness of being Mike Collins on the dark side of the moon, mm. out of radio contact with the Earth, literally being the only person in that part of space at all. It's sort of, there are amazing magical moments. I wanted to talk about the footage of it, which, is, as you say, Anna, is sort of crisp um, and incredible. So this, is, this isn't reconstituted footage. This is sort of unfound. Fo- this is tweaked, I suppose, right? Technically. Yes, technically tweaked, exactly. Sharpened up um, the magic of, you know, computer imagery, but, yeah. but nothing has been added to it, to my knowledge. So, yeah, I mean, and that in itself does feel extraordinary because, you know, you haven't laid eyes on this before. I mean, we, I'm used to watching a lot of fictional films about life on the moon and the man on the moon, but um, this is really something else to see, you know, to see what was actually going down. And, and there were little moments as well, which I felt that I hadn't seen portrayed before and as you were saying things about Michael Collins you know, little parts of the story that aren't particularly represented when you see things like First Man or mm. you know you, you see the typical stories in the typical news reports so yeah, I thought, you know, I mean, they they have to be quite creative at parts because there are obviously parts they cannot show you that they did not capture. So there are points where you've just mainly got audio or you've got stills. Um, but when they do show you the full image, it is extraordinary. Um, and there are ways, um, the ways of building the tension, uh, as, we, as we say, we know the story so well, and yet we still have a sense of the the peril, the hugeness of the endeavour and the sense of peril at various stages 
of of the mission as well as as Andrew was saying, you know, getting the thing to sort of turn around and dock and get, you know, it just seems unbelievably complicated. Um, but there's there's amazing stuff with like the fuel gauge when they're trying to land the eagle after it's become after after they after it detaches from from Columbia the command module it kind of it blasts down and and it's basically Buzz Aldrin's looking out the window going that's nah, really rocky down there I can't <laughs> land there and there's some moments when you you know you know that it, everything ends well kind of thing but it's re- there's proper tension and peril famously Neil Armstrong put eagle on the moon with with 13 seconds worth of fuel left yeah. and my my own way of sort of putting that into perspective is think about the the existential panic that grips many modern people when they see that their phone's battery is down below <laughs> down below 10 percent yeah um and they're still not and they're, and they're still 20 minutes from home yeah um it's that moment that reminds you why it was probably a good idea to source the first astronauts from the ranks of fighter pilots well mm. not not just fighter pilots but test pilots yeah uh, people who were trained uh, above all else to keep a cool head when all around them was was descending into chaos and and coolness under under unimaginable pressure and i think unimaginable is the phrase that keeps coming keeps everybody coming back to the moon missions there's uh, there's only 12 people who who ever lived uh, i think i'm if i've got the numbers right i know what it's like to walk on the moon so i think is it 18 in total who know what it's like to fly to the moon i made those numbers may be soft and there's and there's four men still alive yeah you know, it, it, it's the it's the most rarefied uh, of fraternities, and I and I do think that forever the rest of us, until you know people start doing this again, the rest of us will see them as as people somehow apart. Yeah, I mean the last the last person to walk on the moon, nineteen seventy two. Mm. The first was sixty nine. The last was seventy two. It's a it's a really odd. I mean there are, there are obvious reasons for this. I mean once it's happened once. I mean, there was. I think the viewing figures dipped. They did. This. I mean, they had to start. John Glenn played golf on the moon. You know, As- I mean, astonishingly, people <laughs> they act- needed to do some stuff. You A- know? Astonishingly, people did lose interest in these things. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is again, this this may just be me, um, but the only fault I could find with Apollo Eleven was I genuinely thought it was about twelve hours too short. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would Put that disagree. On the <laughs> um, I wanted to. You mentioned Nixon's sort of backup speech, mm. and I wanted to ask you both about the language of the film because there's some. I mean, we all know, you know, it was one small step for man, one, one giant leap for mankind. But there's some wonderful. There's some wonderful um, conversations and banter between Mission Control and the astronauts. Walter Cronkite's delivery is just beautiful as well. The overall, the language is pretty benign and it's very much about mankind and the world rather than about the greatness of America. Nixon, I think, wrote a speech that he, he toned down a speech that was written for him mm. that was meant, it was very breast beating and patriotic. What's the, what, what, in what universe are we in with the language, Andrew? There's a lot of that, and I, I think the United States was caught in a bit of a bind because obviously a, a big part of the reason why they decided to try and send someone to the moon was that the Soviet Union had beaten them to every other significant landmark in space exploration. The Soviets were the first to put a satellite in orbit. They were the first to put a human being in orbit. They were the first to put a woman in orbit. It was the, the first spacewalker was, mm. was, was a Soviet cosmonaut. The United States had to go big. Um, so for the US, it was a, a soft power offensive, and I think they were pretty much within their rights to paint the words United States of America down the side of a rocket and plant their flag on the moon. But they were quite careful always, and I think genuinely sincere, in actually thinking this is a, a collective enterprise. I think, if I recall rightly, the plaque they left on the moon said that Armstrong and Aldrin came here in peace for all mankind. Yeah. And I, I think it was genuinely seen like that. And I think... 
if even the Soviet Union at the time did not denigrate the American accomplishment, and there, and there was always this sort of strange measure of cooperation and mutual respect between the two space programs. On the one hand, it was regarded as clearly as a, a competition to prove the the uh, superiority of their respective ideologies, but it wasn't anything like as as ruthless or zero sum as the same way that those contests were waged back down here. Yeah. Yeah. Language-wise, as I say, there's some bon mot exchanged. Also, some great, some great looks. Bruce McCandless, <laughs> who's, the mem- who's the head of Green Team, um, he's a kind of good-looking dude, good, uh, kind of more of a fashion buzz cut than a military one. He's got an amazing line in Rolex and a really nice ring. Uh, <laughs> does anyone notice Bruce McCandless? What a cool That guy was very he was. specific. You were really watching him closely. No, I wrote some notes down. Yeah, I watched it yesterday. <laughs> Um, and and I was kind of and I loved the and I loved the the kind of ladies sunbathing on the beaches and the people that camped turning up and you know in their VW campers. There was a real kind of um, I don't know. It was like a time capsule as well. It was like yeah. digging digging up some beautiful kind of remnants. I love what, watching the sort of women um, sort of camping on top and doing their hair and sitting in the sun yeah. and putting their sun cream on and just sort of waiting. That was amazing. But back to the language for myself. I mean, this has been alluded to when you said humankind earlier, but there's a lot of man and mankind. There's a lot of men in there's this a film. Lot, yes, <laughs> yeah. there are no speaking parts for women. You know, yeah. you got me on from for the podcast girls on film. There are literally no speaking parts for women in this film at all. Um, so, you know, I, I did a sort of bristle um, just out of you know the the context and the changing times, every time I heard mankind, mankind, obviously we know what the speech is well. Um, but I think that does make it quite interesting to watch from a contemporary perspective. The fact that you're looking mm. and saying that now, hopefully they might say humankind, and um, that was something interesting to me. But yeah, when you talk about the sort of slightly jocular thing, and it was very interesting to um, watch the people back at base, people almost you know sitting there and in their suits looking quite smart, but then you can see they're really excited, but they don't want to show too much obvious emotion. So it's that, that trying to get that level. Right, and then they break out the cigars, of course, when it's successful, yeah. which is terribly of yeah, its time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, styro- a lot of kind of nervous drinking of styrofoam coffees and 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 cigarettes and cigars. Yeah, in Mission Control. Well, well, there there is the famous quote from Charlie Duke, who was the capsule communication for Apollo 11, later of Apollo 16, who I, I, I did have the great good fortune of meeting quite recently. But that famous line from him, when Eagle gets gets put down at that moment of just sort of incredible incredible gravitas yeah. uh, the fact that he finds the nerve to say is a lot of people turning blue down here who've just breathed out um, <laughs> and, I, and I did ask him about that and he, and he said the thing was he said I felt he, he did say he felt a bit weird afterwards should he have said something more you know solemn and portentous <laughs> yeah. at that point but he said it's 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 God's truth it's just yeah. like you know it, nobody had breathed for about three minutes by that point yeah. um, he was starting to worry about people um, it's it's beautiful. That's what I mean. There is the, there's a beauty of the sort of t- some of the technical language, the countdowns, the the, the, the language of docking and all the, the technical stuff. And there's something kind of beautiful about that. It's become. I mean, th- these samples from the Apollo missions have been used in endless dance music tracks. I mean, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's become that these uh, these things have become so well known, completely out of context of of, of where they're originally used. Anyway, Andrew, you other than re- meeting Charlie Duke, you met the director of Apollo Eleven. Todd Douglas Miller and the archive producer Stephen Slater. This was at the Starmus Festival in this, Zurich. Tell us a bit about what that was. The Starmus Festival uh, is a thing that's been going on since about 2011. It was founded by an Armenian physicist called Garrick Israelian and Brian May out of Queen uh, in his, his other role as actual serious astrophysicist. Mm. Um, and we, which is to say Monocle24, me and Bill Lutie, uh, a producer here, went to Starmus a few weeks ago, helped 
held this year in Zurich in order to make a daily podcast interviewing people who sort of drifted within grabbing range of our, our makeshift studio, one of whom was Charlie Duke. So we're going to play, anyway, this is a clip, Todd Douglas Miller and Stephen Slater. This is at Starmus. Uh, this is the director of the film, the archive producer, speaking to Andrew a few weeks ago. When we first started, we started with a nine-day timeline, because even though the mission is eight days and some change, it's really nine days. So when we started putting in every stitch of uh, photograph, film, video, audio, we just wanted to see all of it and then lock it on the clock and see what was there. And then you have major parts of the mission that we knew were going to be um, you know, exciting, that we can mold scenes around the launch, the landing, the splashdown. But while we were working on the film, Dunkirk had come out. So we were joking among our, our the team, we were, we were making Dunkirk in space. That's kind of what it was. It was really the third act of a film that you were going to a place, you don't know if you're gonna come back uh, you know, alive or not. Uh, and we wanted viewers to feel that. And uh, what's really important, I think, in our film was the team we put together, we'd all just worked together so long from my sound designer to uh, even the iMac sound designer, my music composer I've known since we were kids, and we've talked endlessly about the score, and that certainly helps and in, in aids in uh, you know, building up and ramping up the tension. Stephen, anybody who's ever edited anything knows that the decision about what not to put in or what to take out is, is much, much harder than the decision to put stuff in. Putting stuff's in easy. You can do that all day. When you have this amount of archive to get through, how hard was it to try and distill it down to the images that would tell that entire story in the length of one film? There's not as much film from the mission as you might think there is. So in some respects, there isn't enough material from the actual flight. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we did early on was, uh, and we haven't talked about this yet, but Stephen had spent years taking Mission Control audio and syncing it with soundless footage from Mission Control. And it is the most tedious thing on the planet to sit there and try to lip sync all this stuff. If, you were, if he was lucky, you'd get like a mission clock in a corner and, you know, the camera would pan back to someone. So when we were working on the film, we knew that uh, once you get in the space, you know, they turn it over to Mission Control. And it is, that was our bedrock. That was what we, kind of the guidepost for the entire edit of the film. Because you're locked into wanting to use any synced up footage that Steven had worked on in the film. So if we had, you know, a good scene that had some of that in there, we could wrap an entire scene around it. Because once you see people actually talking on camera, it just makes it come alive. And I, my frustration, and I'm sure Stevens and all of us, because uh, we're fans of the program and the Apollo program, we, you know, we saturated ourselves with watching so, so many so many more films than we care to admit even the old you know 50s industrial NASA films uh, and every single fiction and non-fiction film and that was kind of the frustration particularly in documentaries was that they would just kind of do this hodgepodge over edited uh, of, of b-roll of mission control and we wanted to bring those guys to life who were they what were their jobs what were their responsibilities and then once we had the audio we could really shape their stories and and tell you know uh, the entire story of the mission where the inspired meets the painstaking. Uh, that was uh, Todd Douglas Miller, the director, and the archive producer Stephen Slater of Apollo 11. Um, I found this film quite emotional. The, the takeoff, the rocket taking off, is just a huge moment in a, in a, in a big screen. What got you in the, in the film? 
I think that's an interesting question because I think it probably gets different people in different yeah. ways. I mean, it, it did from actually from the opening when I just saw people in 1969. I mean, I wasn't yet born then, but I'm just thinking of my late mother who was alive then in America. It just made me feel emotional So because it was just taking you into that place. But also, very sadly, I felt very emotional every time they talked about peace on earth yeah. and the world being a better place and everyone coming together and uniting in a mission, um, which sadly in the current days feels very very far away from where we are right now. So those were actually the most emotional bits for me. I know what you mean about the takeoff, but yeah. for me it was more on a personal level, but also thinking, oh gosh, you know, there was that moment when everyone was sort of came together, or well, it feels like they did. Yeah. Andrew, did you get did you, did you get got? Yeah, for, for similar reasons, uh, all to me encapsulated in just... You know, everybody remembers the the clearly pre-thought line that Neil Armstrong had scripted to himself and then kind of fluffed upon actually setting foot on the moon. But for me, the moment that gets me... Which is, is kind of nice as well. It's also it kind of yeah. nice. But for me, the moment that, that always does it is it's that tranquility base, the eagle yeah. has landed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a collection of words that just sound nice together. Mm. I don't know whether he intended that or not, but... It, it's just the fact that it signals in that very dry, matter-of-fact, test pilot's way that this, this ludicrous, improbable ambition, which was signalled, the, begin, the beginning of which was signalled, what, seven years ago? Mm. Pause for us all to reflect yeah. on what we've accomplished in the last seven years. Um, it, you know, has been successfully accomplished. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's an amazing moment. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm clearly massively in the debit side of the ledger on the name dropping column anyway but I, I, I <laughs> I've got a tally here in front of me I saw the film at Starmus it had its Swiss premiere at yeah. Starmus and so I, I was able to enjoy the added frisson of knowing that somewhere in this room where I'm watching this is Buzz actual Aldrin yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's okay right that's emotional in itself, isn't yeah. it? I mean, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> As you say, I mean each of those each of those the, the three men that went into orbit have their own kind of peculiarities and and stories. What I kind of liked about Apollo Eleven was the fact that it was just the, it was the mission. It wasn't mm. there wasn't anyone kind of going. Well, of course he was a of course back on Earth he was not, he was a dickhead. <laughs> yeah, there was. Do you know what I mean? It was it was not spoilt by any kind of extraneous. Or, there was no there was no extra to it, which was, which was kind of one of its strengths. I think that as a film, it was, it knew its focus and it never never veered from it. No? Well, I know, I, I'm, I'm yeah. ahead. I well for me, it was yes, it was a strength, but it was also a weakness because I like the full story and I like all the mm. gaps to be filled. Um, and I do love a good talking head. Well, then you're in the Andrew's, Andrew's territory of it was my only complaint was 12 hours too short. <laughs> 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 okay, this uh, we've kind of dealt with Apollo 11 as much as we ever can in a, in a program of, of 30 minutes. This is our extra reading section. What got what this film got you thinking about, Anna? Um, you want you've picked the farthest. Um, this is another documentary about about space taking us further than the moon. Of course, um, I'm going to play. Let's play a clip from it to get to get our heads around it. Voyager to me was Homeric. Years of passing across the solar system from one planet to the other, and then it was frenzied activity and discovery and conquest. Four billion years from now, when our sun turns into a red giant, Voyager is still going to be trucking out there through the stars. We'll still be out there. This may, in the long run, be the only evidence that we ever existed. And that was a clip from the trailer of The Farthest. Um, Anna, where are we going? Where are we going with this? Further than the moon. 
Well, yeah, I mean, so this was in 1977 when they decided to send a message out to alien life or whatever existed out there. Um, and there was this golden record um, which had messages from people around the Earth in lots of different languages and lots of photographs, obviously with the hope that if it ever reached alien life, goodness knows when, they would learn something about our world. But it was very interesting documentary by Emma Reynolds. It's because um, it, it speaks to a lot of the scientists and the people involved and, you know, composers and people they got involved. So there's all sorts of creative people as well as scientists people and people somewhere in between who were fiercely intelligent who got involved in this and many of them are still alive to tell the tale so it's so interesting hearing from these people about the sort of philosophy behind this idea of reaching out to you know the potential you know the mystery of alien existence and you know there's often very funny anecdotes about who ended up speaking you know on the actual record you know someone's yeah. kid just did that like kind of welcome from the you know children of planet earth kind of thing and it's just like how that was just treated really casually and then how in fact it could have great import many many years down the line and this so, and this is all about this is about sending a craft into deep space it keeps on going and is it still beaming messages back or is it kind of just is it just now a, a kind of transmitter which we're not receiving well, yes for a while it beamed it, it turned yeah. they started to turn it around and it showed images of earth just why not? And yeah. in, you know those images are absolutely incredible. But I think, as far as I recall now, it is it's it's forging ahead. And and again, there's this real sense of our own mortality when it says, "Well, we're all long gone." You know this that may that may be the only evidence of Earth that ever remains. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being depressing again, aren't I? No, you're not. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Um, it'll just come back. It'll come back one day with just a little bit of dust on it. It'll be fine. That's that's going to be really annoying if aliens find it after our sun dies and destroys all life on Earth, and they yeah. say light years across the cosmos to try and meet us and, and we're not here. Yeah. That's not that's not like that, that just seems inconsiderate. Now that's part. depressing. Yes. Just stick a post it on the yeah. <laughs> pick up, pick up, stick a post it on Africa <laughs> saying we'll be back in five Sorry minutes. we missed you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> humankind's final message to the cosmos. Yeah. It's been emotional. <laughs> um, <laughs> Andrew, you wanted to talk about um, uh, Michael Collins's memoir, Carrying the Fire. Uh, I did. I'd been nagged to read this book for years by Andrew Smith, my former colleague at Melody Maker, who wrote a fabulous book called Moondust uh, about the Apollo astronauts and his endeavours to go and meet all of them. Uh, and I believe Moondust has just been reissued for the 50th anniversary. And and seriously, once, once I got past the obviously embittering jealousy that descends upon one when your <laughs> former colleague writes an umpty best-selling classic... <laughs> Uh, it, it is a genuinely, genuinely fabulous book, and Andrew's a heck of a nice guy. So the royalties would all be going to the right place, is what I'm saying to our listeners. But a Andrew recommended years ago that I got around to that I read Michael Collins' memoir. It's called Carrying the Fire. Um, stupidly, it took me until this year to actually listen to Andrew and read it. Yeah, it, it should be taught in schools. I genuinely don't understand why it's not. I mean, it's a self-evidently fascinating story. This is this is the command module pilot on Apollo 11. He did the thing of flying around the moon by himself himself while Aldrin and Armstrong were on the lunar surface. But he can actually write. Um, yeah. it's, it's not ghostwritten. He was very insistent that every word would be his own. It explains the technical stuff in a way that even a complete technological idiot like myself can generally follow most of it. It's surprisingly funny in that very dry 
military-ish, say, yeah, utterly they... unshockable, unfaceable <laughs> way. Uh, the only, and it's a very long book, but again, going back to my wish that Apollo 11 was 12 hours longer, um, I could have stood carrying the fire going on for another several hundred pages. You know, th- There are moments which, if they happen to any of us in this studio, that he kind of rattles through in a page and a half, they would be what our memoir was about. Yeah. Like, the, the whole thing. There's just <laughs> there's a moment when he's, you know, in his days as a fighter pilot, he's involved in some NATO exercise over France, I think, when one of his engines blows up, so he has to eject from a burning fighter jet somewhere over France. And he basically, you know, this, this gets, you know, six paragraphs. Yeah. It's well, like, it's just oh, well, these things happen. But that's how I do? found my favorite little restaurant <laughs> you know, in a village <laughs> in the Pyrenees. It's, 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 actually, it's actually not far off that, but just um, an absolutely extraordinary book uh, by a, a self-evidently extraordinary man. And, and it does really bring back the, the human angle that uh, you were talking about, Anna, which is missed in Apollo 11, but he's quite good and you think quite bracingly honest about the other people he dealt with. Like yeah. the, the first conversation between him and Aldrin after Aldrin read the book. Uh, I suspect might have tended towards the the awkward side, <laughs> okay? Um, because he he he, you know, he he's quite you know, and this this book was originally published in 1974 at a time when these men were still regarded as as golden gods. Mm. Um, and as is now well known, Aldrin is, uh, to put it charitably, a fairly eccentric character. But but this this comes across very much. Uh, in Collins's book. It's it's absolutely extraordinary. I, I cannot speak sufficiently highly of it. It's Carrying the Fire, and it's Michael Collins's memoir, and that was first published in 1974, as recommended by Andrew Miller. Um, Anna talked about The Farthest. Um, it's a documentary about deep space communicating with whoever is out there. Let's hope, they, let's hope someone answers the call before it all goes wrong. Um, and that is all available on all DVDs and streaming channels and all the rest of it. Thank you both very much indeed. Um, that brings us to the end of today's show. Thanks to my guests, Andrew Miller and Anna Smith. Apollo 11 is in cinemas now, and we highly recommend seeing it on the big screen. Uh, the Monocle Culture Show is, of course, produced by Holly Fisher, and I've been Robert Bound, and we'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.